Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. The following conversation was first broadcast in June 2021. What else could that be but the phenomenon which is the Phantom of the Opera? Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on Fine Music Sydney. It's 35 years since the Phantom of the Opera opened on London's West End and it was still playing there until Covid hit last year, making it one of the most successful musicals of all time. And we're so lucky that the spectacular new staging from Cameron McIntosh is arriving at the Jones Sutherland Theatre at the Sydney Opera House from September 3. I'm delighted to say that the man who will be donning that famous mask is with me in the studio today. Josh Pitterman is an Australian musical theatre performer who kicked off his career with the Ten Tenors before appearing in diverse musical theatre ranging from West Side Story, Hairspray, Beautiful and, of course, appearing as The Phantom in the West End production until it was forced to close last year due to the pandemic. Josh Pitterman, thank you for being in conversation with me today. Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks for having me. So tell me about how you feel about returning to this role after such a hiatus. Oh, I'm just incredibly excited. Um, obviously, having done it in London, in the West End, that was really a boyhood dream come true for me. I was, you know, as I've said many times before, singing along to Anthony Warlow CDs <laughs> at the age of 17 and, and um, trying my luck with a with a version of music of the night. Um, and over the years have, have just loved um, singing stuff from the show and whether that was in my lounge room or for friends or at various concerts or, or corporate functions, this music has always been with me and it's always been my dream to play it. So uh, getting the opportunity was, was huge and, and I just loved every second of it and I really suck the juice out of it as much as possible. There wasn't a moment where I didn't pinch myself for the opportunity and with sort of immense gratitude for that opportunity, which is rare for an Australian to go over there and, mm. and have such um, a moment. But uh, it was deeply saddening when everything had to shut down due to COVID. And mm. I wasn't sure whether I was going to get to play the role again. Yeah. Um, and I had to come to terms with that. Um, there was a bit of soul searching around that and um, a bit of inward journey so to speak, and some wonderful support from my partner Lottie and my family back home. And, and so I really had to let go of the idea. Mm. And I think um, what sometimes happens in, in our lives is that when we choose to let go of something, and um, it comes back to us. Mm. And so when I got the call to ask me if I was um, interested in Donnie and Mars <laughs> again. for 10, 10 seconds. Mm, yeah, I think I am. <laughs> yeah, point oh 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 ten <laughs> of a tenth of a second. Yeah, and I just jumped straight out, obviously. And, mm. and, and to get to play it now, um, you know, and be a part of resurrecting theatre in this country. And then on top of that, you know, bring it to the Sydney Opera House. I mm. think there's something exquisite and special about that. Phantom of the Opera in the Opera House. Phantom of the Sydney Opera House, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And I did just find out um, recently that it, it's broken box office records for... The, the best 
day one of ticket sales. This, this production This now? production in Sydney Opera House history. Well, that's not surprising for a whole host of reasons. I mean, I mean, it's it's Phantom of the Opera, but it's also it's also some nice new meaty stuff for people to, after all of the breaks. And I think people are really hungry to get back to the theatre. Yeah, exactly. Um, I know I have been, mm. and I've got to see a few things since, since COVID. Um, and there's just this even... Maybe the sensations are heightened to almost quote a music of the night uh, uh, lyric. Yeah, everyone in that theatre, whether it's it's not just the performers, but everyone sitting in the auditorium at the moment in the theatre, it's just so um, emotionally charged and and ready to be immersed. You know, it's beautiful. You said you wanted the role for some time, mm. singing along since you were seventeen, etc. What is it about this particular role that appeals so much? Well, it's on two fronts. I mean, um, obviously the music is um, really designed for a, a crossover style voice. Um, and that's where I've always sat in that world, somewhere between, uh, you know, opera and, and music theatre. And um, and so it's always resonated with me and what I can do vocally. And so, I, you know, just singing the material is, is a gift. And I, I often say that my favourite thing to sing is music of the night, but... Mm. Really, my favourite moment in the show is uh, the final layer, because that's when everything comes to a head, and um, you know the the ball is bouncing between the actors, and I just think you know really once you get on stage as the Phantom from the past past the point of no return all the way to the end, mm. you sort of press play and everything just shoots out of out of the body, out of the mouth, and um, to the back of the auditorium. There's something special about that reverberating in, in the space. It's pretty. Um, oh, it's yeah. I'm just sort of daydreaming about going back there. Uh, and secondly, it's the complexity of the man. Um, you know, obviously he has been born with this deformity and and so there's immediate empathy for that. Um, he's been shunned and cast out and been thrown to, to the circus and there's a loneliness that, that he has and he's um, been gawked at and laughed at and, and thrown things at and, you know probably been thrown the bags have been have covered him and then he's you know appeared for the masses and 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 um just treated like so inhumanely um and so that's the origins of him that's the nucleus of of this man and then you take that into a grown man and and the complexities and the nuances and layers of challenging stuff that he he has to deal with um it's so interesting to go into that that man to find that nucleus and then to bring out within the parameters of the truth of the character, bring out um, all those different layers. Obviously, he's a genius. Um, and to, to play a genius, I've got to do Once Before, playing Jerry Goffin in Beautiful the Carol King musical, oh, yeah. um, who, who was, who was a, a genius, you know, uh, lyricist. Um, but the Phantom is a genius composer, lyricist, uh, sculptor, magician, architect. You know, he's all these things. But he's... Um, you know, to sort of go into a bit of Carl Jung, he's, he's probably exploring um, subconsciously a lot of his shadow self and his, um, his actions um, are questionable at times, to say the <laughs> least. But we can't not empathise with him. You know? No. Well, I think we have to have some of that uh, magical music from the Phantom of the Opera. And I think you've already given away the, the pick that you, you've made from the musical. <laughs> what is it? The music of the night. its splendor grasp it sense it tremulous and tender hearing is believing music is deceiving 
as lightning soft as candlelight Dare you trust the music of the night Close your eyes for your eyes will only tell the truth And the truth isn't what you want to see Michael Crawford from the original West End production of The Phantom of the Opera, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, who is the current Phantom of the Opera, Josh Pitterman. He's returning to the role from September 3 at the Sydney Opera House. Now, Josh, as I understand it, when you were a child, I mean, you talked about singing that when you were 17 in your lounge room, but as a child, you didn't really see musical theatre in your future, did you? Oh, not at all. I mean, I was sort of traditional Melbourne boy, um, very sporty. I'm a big Western Bulldogs fan for anyone who's who's interested in Aussie rules. Um, probably not that many city siders. Um, <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. Oh, <laughs> that, that's good. Good. Get get on it. Um, so really, footy. I played a lot of tennis, a bit of cricket, a fair bit of basketball, and I just saw my life going down not a professional route because I wasn't that talented, but um, somewhere in the backside of that, you know, whether it was sports physio or mm. sports medicine or something like that. And then I developed this um, <laughs> this sort of obsession with Michael Jackson music when I was about 16. Right. And uh, I sat in front of that television the way I used to sit, you know, stand with a football, you know, shooting for goals and just practice and practice and practice so I could do the moonwalk properly. Wow. And then I started to do it at school. And this is not obviously contemporary with the, the moonwalk originally. This is when the moonwalk's an historic thing, right? Oh, yeah, this is. <laughs> Whatever, 15, 16 years after, yeah, you know, yeah, he, yeah. He, he donned the moonwalk for the first time. Um, you know, shared that with us. What a <laughs> significant moment in pop music. Um, and uh, did it in the school cafeteria once. And the, the director of the school musicals just tapped me on the shoulder and said, have you ever done a musical? We could really use that. And so I did the next musical and then jumped straight into, which was fame, and then just 
went, oh my God. But you hadn't had any singing lessons or singing no, training? No, no, anything? no, no, no. And no, you no, just no. jumped straight into the school musical as, as a lead? Uh, yes. They just needed someone who could do that sort of stuff. Um, and maybe they were short on talent that year. Um, and I just, I just fell in love. And when I got you know, when my final year came around, the thing I was looking forward to most was the school musical. Mm. And it was another Lloyd Webber piece, which was Jesus Christ Superstar. And I played the role of Judas and struggled through a lot of high notes, um, and but just had the time of my life and just knew that this is what I wanted to pursue. Mm. So without too much training, I, um, I auditioned for various music theatre academies in the country and um, Federation Uni Music Theatre, which was... Um, Ballarat Arts Academy then took a punt on me, I reckon. Very passionate, but yeah, as I said, not particularly skilled. Um, and uh, and I just had the best three years of my life. And I used a lot of, I guess, doing a lot of sport growing up. Mm. You know that there's a a diligence, a skill component, a um, practice makes perfect sort of methodology yeah. that, um, w- that was sort of ingrained within me. So... For a lot of singing and dancing and, and to some extent acting, I just drilled. I just drilled everything. I drilled my breath work. I drilled my scales. I drilled those um, chenets from the corner. Like it was just, um, I just had that mentality. What I had to learn later uh, in my career was um, how to dive down into the depths of my soul to bring, to mix art with that, mm. to bring my truth and my substance to that, but that's how it sort of began, and then yeah. and then I came out of uni, and not long after that, um, I, I joined the Ten Tenors. Yeah. So just going back a bit, though, you've obviously got a natural singer's voice. Like you stand up there for the school musical, and, and you know it's a school musical, whatever standards, etc. But the point is that you're able to then, without really any training, because you hadn't had any musical training at all as a I child. I played a bit of guitar, right? Um, and I played piano when I was about five mm. to about eight, but certainly no singing training. <laughs> no, 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 no. What about choirs? Anything like that at school? I, I um. Audition for the Australian Boys Choir when I was in maybe grade four yeah. or grade five, and I got in and wasn't happy with the repertoire um, and quit. <laughs> well, that's that's at least you knew where you stood. Yeah. Funnily uh, enough, I said we need to do more lame is. Well, so here, here, but, and, um, but they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have it, yeah. <laughs> They're stuck in their ways, those places. But to the, that Ballarat Academy, how did you find going there? Because I imagine there would have been a lot of other young people who had had more training. Was there much catching up you had to do or was it all already innately sort of there? Oh, so much catching up. I mean, as far as the guys in our year went, and, and I think the, the ladies in our year, bar one or two, were always at a higher standard than the guys. Um, mm. I think that's often the case yeah. at 18, mm. you know, which a lot of a lot of the guys were just out of school. Um, but I was right down the bottom of the list. Um, but I didn't treat it like going to uni, going to college and having that college lifestyle. Mm. I treated it as three years of music theatre boot camp. Yeah. And that's not for everyone, but that's served me. Yeah. So it wasn't daunting? Uh I guess there were times when there's, you know, where it's daunting and competitive and all that kind of stuff. I've I've learned pretty quickly that um, fear doesn't serve me entirely well, mm-hmm. and that control trying to control things that are out of my control, i.e., how anyone else does anything, um, is uh, not not a track worth going down. Um, so yeah, I just sort of stayed in my own lane. 
Now, you sort of leapt forward there to the Ten Tenors. Uh, how did that audition opportunity come up? Did they find you or did you find them? Uh, it, was, it was more me finding them. I've, I've always been very forward and, and just put, put it out there. Mm. Put something out there. Who knows how it's going to land and what opportunities could arise. It's better, um, what's that, Daryl Summers saying, you never, never know if you never, never go. So I did a recording of Maria when I was about, from West Side Story, when I was mm. about 21. And sent that to, there was something on the 10 Tenors website that said, if you think that you've got what it takes to be one of the 10 Tenors, wow. send an email with an attached file. That's bold of them. <laughs> I don't know what else they received, <laughs> <Yes>. but <laughs> they got back to me really quickly and said there's going to be an availability soon. And I wasn't available then. And then so I grabbed the next availability, which was early 2008. And um, I spent the next two, best part of the next two years touring with those guys, which for me as a 20 two-year-old or whatever um was awesome it was sort of the closest thing to doing the type of singing i wanted to and the type of work that i wanted to at that time and being in a football club mm. it was very lad heavy you know there were 17 guys including roadies and stuff on tour um and um and that's a lot of testosterone it's a lot of testosterone <laughs> um yeah i did learn um very quickly why what happens on tour stays on tour is a cliche phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but it's there for a reason. Absolutely. Oh, dear. Well, um, our next piece of music I'd like you to introduce is The Prayer. Tell me about why you've chosen this one. Well, it's a song that obviously sits right immersed in that classical crossover zone. And, and that's really what The Ten Tenors was for me, training into that into that zone. And it's a song that obviously The Ten Tenors have... have done at, at, at times but um, it's uh, it's one that I think yeah just represents that genre perfectly
the prayer. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the singer Josh Pitterman. He is the Phantom of the Opera, and that's on at the Sydney Opera House from September 3. Josh, you mentioned uh, crossover a couple of times. I mean, how do you define crossover as a genre? That's a really good question. It's, I think, bringing the the most exciting elements of classical music with some contemporary or, or pop underlying sort of foundations. So without getting, you know, too musical, I think Metallica can do crossover. Right. You know, you take The Unforgiven and, and you add um, an incredible orchestral arrangement to it. It's crossed over to another another world. Hmm. Um, it's not a spiritual crossover. No. <laughs> um, but it's a... Uh, yeah, it's it's a genre that I love because I'm you know I I grew up loving pop and rock mm. music, especially I'm mean, a kid of the '90s. You know, they some of that music has I think actually last the tests of time. You know, Nirvana and Alanis Morissette and mm. um, Pearl we, all, Jam. we all say that about the music of our generation, Josh. Well, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> um, well, you don't hear them on TikTok, do you? No, <laughs> that's uh, true. And. Uh, and so crossover just you know adds that those beautiful lush orchestral elements mm. to it. In fact, one of my favorite albums growing up, which I think you know goes into that realm, is Silverchair's Diorama, um, which was an incredible album and, and so heavily orchestral. And and even some of Queen's stuff lends itself so well mm. to the crossover. Um, I mean, you could even argue that Bohemian Rhapsody itself is almost a crossover. Hundred percent. But that genre has been made famous by you know people like Sarah Brightman and mm. even Lloyd Webber, Josh Groban, and and Pacelli. Um, so uh, and it's uh, Il Devo as well. And so it's a it's a genre that I just love. Um, I know I'm I'm maybe in a uh, in a minority there, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. So from your time with the Ten Tenors, is there something that you felt you learned, given that that was, apart from what goes on tour, stays on tour, <laughs> apart from that lesson, but about how to be a performer, how to be a singer? Yes. How to not over-sing. What's that mean? Well, I would sort of go out there and, and give my full fortissimo a lot. Um, early on singing, I was like, I'm very energised, very testosterone-driven, mm. young man, you know, and just go out and belt the living hell out of everything I From sung. note one. And so I learned how to sort of glide more through my, my range and um, and save those moments. And, and in doing so, really opened up a lot of my top register, um, which um, has served me really well going mm. forward. And, and obviously you hone that and fine tune that and there's never an end. I think, you know, Pavarotti was still having coaching in his final days type thing. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's never an end to perfecting or aiming for perfection without... Never, without ever realizing it, but um, but that's what that's what the ten tennis taught me. Mm. Was there anything that shocked you when you started doing that first tour? Because obviously, when you start working professionally, no matter how well you've studied, no matter how professional the standard the college period was, there's always a jump, isn't there? Oh yeah, um, I was lucky. I had done a couple of other things in mm. in between, so I did a production of Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. In, with the Melbourne Opera Company, and that sort of was a small foray. I'd done some cabaret work, and then I actually went to Tokyo Disney for nine months as a singer. Um, and so that's what I did in between uni and, right. and ten tennis. And what that that was actually wonderful teaching because we had to do up to five shows a day. Wow. Um, we worked five days a week, so we do about I think you do two fives, two threes, and a two. So whatever that equates to quick math about eight, 18 shows a week and so that taught me repetition 
and stamina as well. Stamina, endurance that mm. that music theatre especially is is um, is a marathon because mm. each one of those shows needs to be as good as each of the other shows. You 100%. can't say, "Oh, the first one of the day is going to be great, and then I'll just phone in the next one because I've got to absolutely save not. my voice." So you've got to get them all even and perfect. Yep. Yeah. And um, were they harsh on you in terms of that making sure you you kept that standard? Yeah, it's Disney. Mm. And it's Japan. Mm. And there's a sort of um, robotic nature to how things are constructed. And the expectation sometimes is that the human form and the, and the robot form coexist. <laughs> you know, that, that you are able to just do things on, you know, the snap of a finger. Yeah. And, um, so some, some of the battle was just learning how to deal with that. But all of these lessons have been, you know, intensely valuable over my career. Yeah. So the opportunity came up to play Tony in West Side Story, um, or at least the opportunity to audition for that <laughs> role. Um, had you been looking to finish up your time with the Ten Tenors, or was it just something that looked like it was too good to be true? Uh, not entirely, but I had, um, funnily enough, about nine months after joining the group, I auditioned for Phantom of the Opera to uh, understudy the Phantom and Raoul. And um, and actually got the got the gig, but wasn't able to to get out of the contract, to and that work, was yeah. and that was fair enough, you know. Um, those things are binding. What, what can you do? So I knew when Westside was coming out for auditions, receiving the brief, that I, I had to part ways with the group in order to give myself the opportunity. Mm. So it was risky, but as I said, I sort of often did things on um, intuition and gut feeling, and with a sort of fearless approach and live by the sword, die by the sword type thing. So um, it worked out. <laughs> so was it an audition process or were you just offered the role? Oh, no, it was an intense audition process. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I don't think you can you can ever not go through an audition process for a show like West Side Story. Mm. Um, so, yes, uh, I went through the intense audition process and sung Maria way too many times. <laughs> and, um, oh, come and, on, there's not too many times. Hi, it's, it's practically it's, music of the night, isn't it? it yeah, it, no, it really is. Um, and... Um, yeah, that was the sort of start of my um, foray into into leading roles in musical theatre. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any nervousness about reading that first review, playing a lead in the musical? I was once told that a great review is like a steroid. An awful review can hang with you for the rest of your life. Having said that, I wish I didn't, but I still read them. <laughs> um. I'm not sure what the first review of Westside said. I don't know, but um, reviews really sit in the camp of controlling the controllables. Um, So now I read them, but with some acknowledgement of the subjectivity of the craft that is performing arts. Being one of the 10 is one thing, but now you're a lead in a famous musical. Uh, pressure? Much? <laughs> oh, so much pressure, but there's always pressure. Yeah. Um, the, the most pressure that's out there is the pressure I put on myself. Right. Um, and I think it's the same for anyone who's working um, at a high level. Mm. It's, it's how much the inner voice, how much the self-critic, how much your own conversations in, in, inside your head can lead you down a sort of rabbit hole of, destruction mm. or conversely um, lead you towards uh, a, a shining moment mm. um, you know a lot of work has been done in the mental health side of things at the moment and that's a, a big space um, 
notably for men, because especially in this country, we have um, a sort of epidemic of men who um, are not willing to express how they feel. And so uh, that's a part of my life that I've spent a lot of time engaging in, my own mental health and the mental health of, of other men. And um, in fact, I, when I'm not performing, um, I teach meditation. Ah. And um, I'm a big advocate and I'm an avid meditator. Um, have been since sort of uh, late 20s, early 30s. And, um, you know, I've had groups of other men come over to my house. We call the Medi Men, other male performers. Um, yeah, we go inward, meditate together. And, and it's it's not about silencing the thoughts that, that come in. But like I said, with, with reviews and the subjectivity, being able to sort of step away and witness thoughts rather than, you know, let them take over your catastrophize things. And that's really important for a performer. Well, after that, I think we have to have a little bit more music. And how can we not have Maria from West Side Story? Now, I've managed to find this one uh, from a YouTube clip of you performing, I think, in a television show. So you have to forgive some of the audience noise and so on, but I think it's worth hearing Josh Pitterman sing Maria. Maria, I just met a girl named Maria. And suddenly that name will never be the same to me. Maria, I just kissed a girl named Maria, and suddenly I found how wonderful a sound can be. Maria, say it loud and there's music playing. Say it soft and it's almost like praying. Maria, I'll never stop saying Maria. Josh Peterman with Maria from West Side Story. Josh is my guest in conversation today, and Josh returns as the Phantom. Well, not returning to us because he's already played it on the West End, but he'll be playing the Phantom of the Opera at the Sydney Opera House, the Phantom of the Opera House from September the 3rd. Josh, West Side Story must have provided quite the launching pad then for you. Tell me about what happened next. Yeah, I guess, of course it does. When you play a role of, like, Tony, that sort of quintessential anti-hero um, and, you know, toured around the whole country. And, uh, I mean, it came with um, lot, lots of kudos and um, wonderful things, and which was beautiful. Yeah, I'm just reflecting in, in my mind's eye about, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really special moment. It was also 11 years ago. Um, yeah. And so much has happened since then. But it was definitely the launching pad. Um, and... Uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for that opportunity because, you know, although Tony is like 19, 
often it's cast a bit older because it requires a quite uh, a expansive range classical voice. So to do it at 24 um, was was great. Yeah. <laughs> 24 is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a typical uh, Hollywood casting, isn't it? 24 for 19. <laughs> uh, no, I think we just need to go back to where we started, which is which is Phantom. Um, now, I know you said you had to audition for West Side Story, um, but you're a little bit more established now. I'd like to think that you just got the call one day to play the role in London, but I suspect there were a few more steps involved than that. Oh, there was. <laughs> there was not like that at all. So, it's a great story, and um, it's a full circle story. Um, because it starts outside the Sydney Opera House and now it's going to go back to the Sydney Opera House and that's beautiful. So 2019 Australia Day live concert, um, my good friend John Foreman, who I've been working with for about 10 years, called me up. I was actually in in a little um, organic farm, um, Diaceroni Agriturismo. Uh, in Tuscany, and I get this call from from John saying, "Oh, Josh, do you want to um sing Ness on Dorma at Australia Day Live?" Um, <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Yes, of course, I want to okay. do that." Um, so that uh, moment that's super defining for me. There's these moments in your career that you go, "That changed my life." That those three minutes changed my life um, because that footage was um, sent over to the casting directors of Phantom over in London and they were really keen to see me for an audition and um, you know come July I was you know starting rehearsals I'd moved over to London Um, I'd also met the love of my life in that that trip going to Italy and being in Europe and and she's from Scotland but lived in London and we're now engaged which is amazing so we got to move in together thank you Um, and um, so it was just like The universe was just saying, "This is where you need this to be. This is where you got to go. This is what you got to do." So, um, it was it was amazing. But yeah, as I said, the the mm. it, it was six months was awesome. But of course, it was short lived. So I'm I'm just hungry for more. Yeah, because it was really cut off, um, really prematurely. I mean, were you just supposed to con- keep playing that indefinitely, or like? Oh, not two indefinitely, years or but no, I mean, it's never forever. But yeah, but yeah, a couple of years. A couple think. of years. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that day where you found out that we're not going on tonight and. We we don't know when we're next going on. I guess, you know, we were all somewhere in mid-March 2020 when things changed. Um, None of us knew the full extent of what was about to happen. And so when we sat in the auditorium on that Monday, um, it was like any other Monday, although we knew that something was about to shift. And I hadn't heard, but Boris Johnson had just announced that people should avoid going to theatres or entertainment venues. And that was enough for the producers to say, all right, guys, let's go home for the night. Show cancelled and we'll um, we'll let you know tomorrow. And then the next day we got an email saying, no show for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. We thought maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a yeah. month. And it just dragged on and it's on and on to it. a point where, um, you know, we had to be let go, um, mm-hmm. which is totally understandable. It's tragic. Mm. It makes me so sad to think about that. Um, I feel for my company. I feel for everyone on the West End. Mm. I feel for everyone on Broadway. I have so many dear friends whose livelihoods, um, front of stage, Mm. uh, back of stage, front of house, depend on theatre. And we're the lucky ones in this country. And and we have to remember that. If COVID taught us anything, it's um, to reassess our values 
and to remember all the things we're grateful for. Mm. Um, and just because things have opened up quicker here, it's it's I don't think it's an excuse to to forget those those things. Um, so I approach Phantom this time. Um, yes, I was pinching myself through it last time, but I just approach it with um, immense gratitude. Someone is looking out for me. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about your interpretation of the of the role, because uh, I mean we've spoken about the character earlier, but I'm curious. Did you study previous performances? Because obviously, quite a few blokes have played the role now. Yeah, I purposely avoided that. Right. Um, I feel like you could get down a rabbit hole. There's, I don't know how many men have played it over the years, probably hundreds in all the different countries. In all the different countries, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, but there yeah. are some iconic ones. There are some Michael iconic. Michael for instance. Yep. Um, nope, I just avoided it at all costs. Mm. Um, and, and later since then, I've seen other people's things, but I made sure that I, I never did that. Um, because how can you not be... Um, coerced or just be triggered by someone else's mm. input you know it's there it's in your memory and, and it's impossible to avoid I, I would feel and I did that when I was at uni I'd watch people's versions of things and and sort of carbon copy pretty much and then mm. and I did that going for certain auditions you know um early on in my career and I learned that, that doesn't really serve me mm. so um I I'm an intensely creative individual and so i when we talk about what's my interpretation of it my interpretation is one of a kind purely because no one else can do Josh Pitterman's version of the Phantom of the Opera mm. um, it's a sort of Sondheim saying about you know your, your own that's your most unique quality is the fact that you're you um, and what's in the depths of my soul is in no one else's and, and I, I, I go to some pretty interesting places playing him I don't avoid the darkness I don't avoid the eroticism the sexuality because it's all it's all there, um, and I think all of that stuff makes the beautiful theatre. I want people to come out of it having transcended themselves in some way, have go, taken themselves from whatever they were doing that day, mm. and be tra- yeah transported and 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 go to a place where they're feeling things that they haven't felt in a long time, but. Secondly, they've been needing to feel those things. Mm. Um, Theatre does that, and I think Phantom does that in a way that lots of other shows can't. Well, we have to have some more music now, and uh, this track I think you need to, to we need to delve into a bit more because it's actually from your album. Now, is this your first album? Or My or only your, album. Well, therefore, it's your first album. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is your debut album, I believe, is the expression. So it's uh, Hallelujah. So, well, first of all, tell me about this album. Well... If everything, if anything was crossover, yeah. for those who've been listening to the rest of the show, this is crossover. So what I wanted to do was take some of my favourite pop and rock song. And as, as I said, I'm a big '90s pop and rock fan, and, and a lot of this music is '90s, some '80s, some more contemporary, and um, <laughs> bring them into the realm of crossover. So that involved translating things that hadn't been translated before, Spanish and Italian, and. Um, I just had such a ball doing it and I, obviously I did it with John Foreman um, because he's my man, uh, he's my bromance. So the great thing about Hallelujah and, and why it's on my top five is that you know the, the album, we did the album in 2017 but I'd been working with John since probably 2011 and Hallelujah along with Unchained Melody which is also on the album were the first two tracks that we ever played around with, we wanted to do our own versions of it and so... 
That's why it uh, it gets a nod. <laughs> well, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne and cut your hair. And from her lips she drew the hallelujah, 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 Josh Pitterman with Hallelujah from his debut album. And Josh Pitterman is, of course, the Phantom of the Opera. He'll be at the Opera House from the 3rd of September. Get along to opera.org.au for more information and to book your tickets, which, if Josh was saying earlier, are selling at record levels. Is that right, Josh? Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, yeah. People are, are love Phantom. Love, love, fan, love so Phantom. Don't miss out. Of course they do. Well, as a singer, um, there's obviously a lot of pressure to keep yourself fit and healthy, um, perhaps more so than any other artistic role like an actor, and especially in times like these. Is there a particular regime that you have to keep yourself match fit? Absolutely. Um, I, and I love exploring what my body can do and what it enjoys most. Um, so I do a fair bit of strength and conditioning training. And right now I'm working, it's not a plug, but I'm working down in Melbourne with uh, at a place called Edge. And it's uh, the coaches there, uh, either current or ex-coaches of AFL and NRL. Mm. Um, and so I feel like I'm getting some really, really elite training. you still got the AFL in your blood, obviously. Yeah, I, I love footy, <laughs> yeah, so it connects yeah. me back to it. Um, I do a fair bit of yoga as well. Obviously, I meditate. And, um, and uh, look, nutrition for me is, uh, I, I don't eat meat. 
Um, so it's just about um, ensuring I get, you know, good whole foods into my system. And when I'm playing the Phantom, interestingly enough, it's about working out when is the best time to get the calories in. Because once you get into the makeup chair, which is a good, probably an hour and a half before the show sometimes, mm. then you don't have an opportunity to eat, but you're not on stage for another however long. Right. And then you've got the show. So you can't have anything to eat after you've had makeup. Oh, you can, but you're not going to have a big not, not Nothing substantial, no. Yeah. No. So And then you could be left starving after the show. So I've actually worked recently with a nutritionist to get this ready for, because it's something I just was couldn't get right. Mm. Um, and uh, he's, um, we're just working out a bit of a regime and it's about getting sort of switching things up and, and basically doing lunch and dinner as the first two meals of the day mm. and, um, and getting most of the calories in you know, beforehand because it requires a lot of energy to play that role. Mm. And, and it's a lot of not just physical energy but emotional energy, but they're both um, you know, um, affect him on, on, on the body's nervous system. And so uh, I just um, I want to make sure that I do everything I can to enable audiences to get to witness me doing it eight times a week. Eight times the challenge. It's not just about going out there and doing it. It's what you do to recover, to be able to do it again and again and again and again. Well, we've talked a lot about Phantom today, and it's a role, of course, you, you always wanted to play. But I'm assuming that that hasn't ticked everything off your bucket list. What would be an extreme role? Uh, I get asked this a fair bit, and I... I mean, I'd love to do Jekyll and Hyde. I'd love to do Les Mis. I'd love all these things. Um, but number one would be a show that hasn't been done before. And get to a new show. A new, brand new show. Mm. And get to be there. Be the one on the original cast recording. <laughs> well, that's one thing. But it's more about the creative process. Yeah. I think as I've gotten older, that's what I enjoy the most. I love a rehearsal room. I love a, a table reading. Um, I love the sharing of ideas and the camaraderie and the community and the bouncing off each other with other actors and their input and um, seeing things from different angles. So being in those original table readings and getting to go put a big cross through that line and going, oh, what about this? And going, oh, my God, I was a part of the embryo. Yeah. And then to watch the baby form and then hopefully take it to a, you know, Aussie or West End or Broadway stage would be, that would be a great mission. Have you thought of collaborating with uh, any composers and writers? I haven't actually, but m maybe that's something for the future. Yeah, yeah, something for After Phantom. Well, Josh Pitterman, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. Thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing you as the Phantom. Thanks so much for having me, Simon. It's been a joy. Singer Josh Pitterman, he's performing the title role in Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera at the Sydney Opera House from September 3. Well, that's In Conversation for this week. If you can't catch the program at 1pm on a Wednesday, remember you can subscribe to the podcast version and do please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast site. This is Simon Moore thanking you for joining me on Fine Music Sydney. To take us out, let's go back to the aria which Josh was telling us about, which helped catapult him into the role of The Phantom from his performance at the Australia Day 2019 concert on Sydney Harbour, complete with fireworks, here's Nessun Dorma.
Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation.